Today on Speaking Out of Place, we talk with Ashley Dawson, co-editor of a new collection of essays by indigenous activists who are fighting against fortress conservation, a tactic of dispossessing indigenous peoples from their lands in the name of the planet. The book is called Decolonized Conservation, Global Voices for Indigenous Self-Determination, Land, and a World in Common. This book is not only a damning dossier of the many forms of violence enacted under the aegis of conservation, but also provides a beautiful map for a future organized on radically different terms. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. I thought I'd ask you, Ashley, first to tell us about Survival International, the group that's behind this and also the conference in 2021, Our Land, Our Nature. So Survival International is a transnational nonprofit organization that works to support the rights of indigenous peoples and land-based communities around the world. And I first came across them and started this project that led to the co-edited publication, Decolonized Conservation, that just came out as a result of a kind of counter summit that they had in the autumn of 2021. So what was happening then was one of the biggest conservation organizations, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, was having a big summit in Marseille, southern France, and they were advancing a whole series of quite problematic goals around conservation. So what Survival International decided to do was to hold a counter-summit where other critical voices could be put forward about what conservation has been doing and what some of the implications of policies that the IUCN and other big corporate conservation organizations are pushing would really be for indigenous peoples and other frontline folks around the world. So I came across the videos of the talks that were given at that conference relatively soon after the conference was held. I reached out to one of the organizers, Fiore Longo, who is Argentinian, but is based in France, working for Survival International, and had a conversation in which I talked about how incredibly important this work was, and the kind of culmination of the conversation was that I asked her whether the presentations were going to appear in any other format than YouTube videos. And she sort of said, well, you know, we've thought about doing a book of some kind, but none of us really has the time to write a whole book. It just seemed to me that as someone working in this area, I could be useful as an ally and an activist by helping to move this project forward and have it in other formats. So right there on the spot, I offered to try transcribe all of these talks. A foolhardy thing to do, perhaps, because, you know, I don't have access to any good transcription technologies. Essentially, what I did was to transcribe all of the talks by hand. So the work of transcription was very interesting and generative for me. And it's now led to this book, which I hope will really circulate within activist circles and within academia and make the issues which Survival International is bringing to people's attention much more prominent for people in a whole variety of different areas. It seems like this is actually such a beautiful and radical methodology for assembling a book, having the words of frontline defenders without, you know, Western quote-unquote anti-colonial academics situated as the experts on the theory and then just drawing on the indigenous land and water defenders as the raw material that fuels their analysis, but to actually have all of these testimonies they're centered as the site of knowledge production itself. 
Yeah, I think that was a very important aspect of the conference and was really key to the book project. And again, it turns the book project into a labor of multitudes, essentially, because in addition to my transcription work, what Survival International then had to do was to find ways to contact many of these indigenous people and read back the transcription to them via cell phone in their own indigenous language in order to make sure that what we had transcribed was what they really intended and then sort of on the fly try and make adjustments. So it was really a big labor on the part of everyone and it's produced this kind of collective series of testimonies. The voices in the collection are from Global South communities that are being directly impacted by fortress conservation and new forms of colonialism. Exactly. And I'm sort of picking up on what Aziza said about the importance of this book coming out as it does as a kind of response to Western-based ways of presenting these issues. And could you talk a little bit about all these false solutions that are given really important dimensionality when you hear Indigenous voices saying, well, on the ground, it looks much different. Maybe talk about the protected areas and all the things that you all get into. Absolutely. So as many know, we're in the midst of a kind of crisis of biodiversity, which is unfolding alongside the climate crisis. You know, journalists like Elizabeth Colbert have made this famous by talking about it as the sixth extinction. And so what is happening is not just extinction of individual species, but the destruction and kind of impoverishment of entire ecosystems as a result of kind of capitalist agriculture and new forms of sort of colonial incursion, like extreme extractivism of mining companies, many based in global North nations like Canada, for instance, that are intervening in very delicate ecosystems. So once you know about the fact of the sixth extinction, it's terrifying. There's a whole United Nations process to address it that's unfolding alongside the United Nations climate summits. And kind of confusingly, the acronym is the same. So it's a conference of parties. So we have the COP meetings that are for climate change, but then there are also conference of parties meetings for the biodiversity crisis. And an important one just took place last autumn in Montreal. That was COP15. So once you know about this crisis of biodiversity, the question is sort of what are the roots of the crisis and what do you do to solve it? And in my book, Extinction, I talk about the roots of the crisis, which, as I've already briefly alluded to, have to do with the expansion of capitalist modes of agriculture and extractivism around the world. So, for instance, the growth of large palm oil plantations in places like Indonesia or the expansion of soya and beef growth in Argentina and Brazil, just to take two regions of the world. And all of that is mowing down biodiverse ecosystems, some of the most rich rainforest ecologies on the planet. So in Extinction, A Radical History, I talk about how capitalism is a system that is predicated on ceaseless expansion and the impact on terrestrial ecosystem, on animals and plants and on the soil itself of this system and how it's been speeding up in its destructiveness and kind of ecocidal import in recent decades. So that's one question, you know, what is driving it and how we need to get beyond the idea that sort of humanity just has an inherent tendency to destroy the world, which is what you hear from a lot of journalists like 
Elizabeth Colbert. So getting to the roots is one issue. And then, of course, the next question is, what do we do, you know, once we know that this is unfolding? And the dominant solution today is conservation. Sounds great, right? You know, we want to put parts of the world in kind of protected areas where there aren't going to be any incursions of some of the forces I've been describing. And by doing that, kind of protect these biodiverse ecosystems. That's the kind of popular idea. They're many well-endowed conservation organizations, most of them based in the U.S. or in Europe, that use cuddly images of pandas and polar bears and other charismatic megafauna to get public support for their projects. The problem is that if you look into the history of these conservation organizations, you find out that it's a colonial history that in the past, as well as in the present, is associated with massive dispossession and human rights violations. You know, people constantly act scandalized that supposedly benevolent forces like conservation would turn out to be forces of colonialism. And yet, when we look at the history of colonialism, we see that this is really paradigmatic of the way that colonialism operates through not only overt violence, but also what positions or parades itself as benevolence, its ability to operate through both creating a problem and then purporting to produce the solution, which ends up just further reproducing the problem, which justifies further colonial intervention and accumulation of power. A few weeks ago, we had an episode on decolonizing the museum where the destruction of indigenous cultures created through colonialism is now addressed or resolved through creating colonial museums that continue to be based on the plunder of indigenous people's intellectual and artistic heritage. And so similarly here, we see how conservation becomes yet another face that leads to the accumulation of colonial power to resolve the very ecological crisis that's created by colonialism in the first place. And so can you tell us about what this colonial dynamic of conservation tells us about the way that colonialism operates generally? Yeah, such an important question. So, you know, obviously settler colonialism was based on widespread destruction of both indigenous cultures, a kind of massive genocidal attack on indigenous peoples in many parts of the world, and also destruction of ecosystems. If you look at the kind of ideological legitimations for colonialism, like John Locke's two treatises on government, there was this whole idea that settlers had a right to the land because they would improve it in a way that indigenous people were seen as circulating in ecosystems and not doing anything to improve them or even destroying them in some ways. And so the claim of settler colonialism was that God's will would be fulfilled if the colonizers could develop and basically turn a lot of what they perceived as wilderness into developed agricultural systems. The problem was that exploitation of the land and that destruction of the people who'd been living on the land basically exploited the land to the point where there were massive environmental crises unfolding with the growth of plantation economies in the Caribbean and in North America and other parts of the world. So by the mid to late 19th century, elites began to think about the need to protect certain areas of the world. And they did this through a whole discourse of the wilderness, right, which had been part of the original justifications, the kind of idea of empty land, terra nullius, which was one of the legal doctrines that justified colonialism. So the idea was you would protect that empty land, that, that wilderness, and 
put fences around it, essentially. The United States was one of the most important places where this happened with the creation of national parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone. But of course, the land on which the sort of protected wildernesses was established was not actually vacant, you know, of inhabitation. It was the dwelling place of Native American peoples who had stewarded those environments for many thousands of years in a way that was sustainable. So the parks essentially were based on this process of violent extirpation and destruction of people's dwelling on the land. And then the creation of a kind of fortress form of conservation that didn't allow people back onto the land unless they were wealthy white tourists. And that kind of model of a national park has been exported around the world. I think it's also important to see, though, that the notion of fortress conservation, which sounds like there's a complete wall around the park or the protected area, gives us a bit of a false sense because those walls are always permeable. You know, I mean, wealthy white tourists, wealthy white hunters who were looking to bag as much, you know, charismatic megaphone, as much game as possible to sort of show that they were like European aristocrats. They could come and go freely, right? And if you look at other sites where conservation was first being established in the 18th and 19th century, you can see that not only were these protected areas where indigenous people were being forcibly deprived of their lands and killed if they tried to come back permeable to people, but they were also permeable to sort of capitalist extractivists. So the creation of the forest department in India in the mid 19th century is a great example of this, right? Where the East India Company, which was the dominant power during that period, was taking a lot of timber out of India's forests to the point where timber supplies were really crashing. And so in the mid 19th century, the British established the forestry department in India and basically deprived the indigenous people in India, the Adivasis, of longstanding rights to live in those spaces and to gather forest products in a way that was completely sustainable. But this doesn't mean that the British stopped logging those forests. They continued to log the forests. And so we see that this history continues to play out today as parks are established all around the world and indigenous and other land-dependent communities are kicked out. Wealthy tourists can still come and go inside those parks. And often there are also concessions to extractive industries like timber companies or mining companies to come into the parks and take so-called natural resources out of the parks. So there's this colonial history to conservation that once you sort of start looking at the history, you can see how, how violent and bloodstained it is in the past but also see that it continues to play out in the present. I'm always surprised when I look at the work and see when it scales up to the global, how much commonality there is, both in terms of repressive tactics and probably transnational interactions, but also indigenous resistance. Could you talk a little bit about the things that most struck you about both those? In other words, the oppression from above, but also the kinds of responses from indigenous peoples when we look at it more global scale. There's a long history of creating conservation refugees. That trend always involved violence towards indigenous and other land-dependent communities, but that violence has been kind of ratcheting up in recent decades. And particularly since the beginning of the war on terror a couple of decades ago, we've seen a kind of confluence of discourses around sort of securitization and protection of parkland 
and the need for militarized response to what gets called poaching or to basically the efforts of local people to survive in many instances. So, you know, there are allegations that poaching is being used to fund violent terrorist organizations in many global South nations. And there may be a, a certain number of instances where that's true, but, you know, it's not systematic. And most of the people who end up getting shot in the environs of national parks are are the people who were living around there uh, for centuries and are just trying to access the park or whose cattle wander into the park accidentally. So they go and try and round them up again and they get shot by these guards. Plus the large-scale corporate extractivism itself is never called terrorism or poaching, even though it's at much grander scale of violence. Absolutely right. So there's total hypocrisy around how these discourses get mobilized. Yeah, this analysis of who is behind the violence against the natural world is one that is very blinkered and doesn't look at how capitalist extractivism continues on in many of these spaces. And I think it's in addition to the conjunction of sort of war on terror security discourse and conservation. The other thing that's important to see that's unfolding at the moment is that there's a kind of coming together of a sense of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. And so you get big organizations, kind of corporate conservation, increasingly trying to promote itself as the solution to climate crisis, right? So in other words, you don't want to shut down polluting corporations that are tearing up the planet. So you let them continue to pollute, but you allow them to do this thing called carbon offsetting, which is basically to buy some kind of forgiveness through supposedly sponsoring carbon absorbing infrastructure, almost always in poorer nations in the global south. So what absorbs carbon? Well, ultimately, the vast amount of carbon offsetting is through trees. So you're going to have these protected areas that are supposedly filled with trees and absorbing carbon. The only problem is that at today's sort of carbon budget, you'd have to plant a new forest the size of Australia to absorb all the carbon being emitted today. And that's not even thinking about sort of emissions down the road. So it's just logistically absolutely impossible and it's not going to happen. And if it were to happen, it would be by removing agricultural land, which would create massive worsening of already dire issues relating to food injustice and insecurity. So it's not really going to happen. But what we see is these big conservation organizations trying to market themselves essentially as solving the climate crisis, getting millions and millions of dollars from big corporations that continue to pollute and from wealthy governments. And in the process, you know, in order to support all of this rhetoric, engaging in a new kind of round of colonialism, sort of intensifying the forms of violent conservation and fortress conservation. So yeah, there's a really worrying conjunction that's playing out right now. And it's associated with massive human rights abuses around the world, abuses that most of the corporate conservation organizations refuse to even acknowledge. There was a hearing about a year ago where some of these conservation organizations were called to account in the U.S. Congress, and they basically refused to acknowledge any of the reports which Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations have discovered. 
about the kind of violence being inflicted by militarized conservation guards, essentially, in areas that are maintained and owned by Western conservation organizations like Conservation International or WCS, UF, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the scenario. And it's really important to understand this conjunction, which my comrades in Survival International call blood carbon Mm -hmm. in a report that they just produced, you know, this kind of carbon offsetting politics that's directly connected to human rights violence and a new kind of wave of colonialism. And David, you'd also asked sort of how these dynamics are playing out on the ground in the moment, what kind of resistance we find to this. So I think there is an increasing sense among indigenous groups and other frontline communities that they need to to mobilize, continue to fight for free prior and informed consent that claims of land back are absolutely essential. And I think that kind of message is what we're trying to support in the Decolonized Conservation Project. And, you know, although Indigenous people are only about 5% of the global population, the areas where they live have 80% of the world's existing biodiversity. So we know from scientific studies that Indigenous ways of being on the land and stewarding the natural world are the ones that are actually conserving the planet. And so we need to give them meaningful sovereignty over their lands instead of, you know, having big Western conservation organizations come in or, you know, post-colonial nation states and kind of corrupt elites working with those big conservation organizations and coming in and robbing people of their land. You know, it's indigenous initiatives like the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People that have been really key. Can you talk about some of the possibilities, but also the limitations of using international law to address ongoing colonial violence? We know from scholars of third world approaches to international law that international law itself has been deeply implicated in colonial dynamics of violence and continues to be situated on colonial foundations based on, for example, the colonizer's assertion of a right to sovereignty that was premised on the dispossession of Indigenous people. And we know that even documents like UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, continue to treat existing state borders as sacrosanct, even though, as we know, those borders continue to be selectively permeable so that, as described in the book, we now have the creation of these transnational conservation, effectively, you know, another type of nation that transgress borders, even as Indigenous communities continue to be dismembered by these borders. So can you talk about some of the perhaps tensions or ambivalences in using a colonial international law to address the types of colonial violences that are described so graphically in the book, not only mass dispossession, but also extrajudicial tortures and killing. Yeah, thank you. Those points are so important to to make. And, you know, the one kind of protocol that I cited, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, is kind of advisory document. It, you know, it doesn't have the status of, you know, juridical law for any particular nation, and many nations have not recognized it. So recognize it with serious caveats. Exactly. And there are other ways in which the shortcomings of international law and the kind of violence of the nation state continues to to play out. So, for instance, I have done research on uh, the struggle of indigenous people in India, the Adivasi people. And there was a victory in the early 2000s with the passage of the Forest Rights Act in India. And of course, there was a kind of 
political opening, which allowed that victory in India, that's been closed to a certain extent with the rise of the BJP and, you know, a very authoritarian tendency in Indian politics. But still, it's an important milestone because it gives Adivasi people the right to self-governance in their territories. And it also sort of devolves governance of those territories to a village level. But, you know, what we've seen since the passage of the Forest Rights Act in 2005 is that the Indian state has tried to dismantle it, not actually bring it to bear in many ways. So, you know, the same kind of process that you were alluding to with the kind of contradictions and blindnesses and willful violence of international accords around the rights of indigenous people also plays out on the national scale. Despite the passage of the Forest Rights Act, the Indian state retains the right to control everything below the level of the ground. So all subsurface rights are retained by the nation state, which means that you can have the Indian government saying, okay, yes, we recognize the rights of an indigenous group to control the forest, but we're going to permit a coal company to come in and extract all the subterranean coal in that land. And I think that this kind of legal loophole, in fact, you know, this was a loophole that was established by the East India Company, you know, mm -hmm. under the British Raj in the 19th century and was exported throughout the empire. And it also characterizes rights to extractivism in the United States in many instances. You spoke about rights below the ground, but also what about in the air? Like we see how these colonial dynamics are increasingly being enforced through drone surveillance. And I.L. Weitzman, a critical Israeli scholar, has referred to this as vertical occupation. So what about the occupation of the air? Yeah, that's a great point. I love Isle Weitzman's work, and certainly in terms of settler colonialism in Palestine, it really makes a lot of sense. I haven't looked at, you know, how conservation organizations or national parks are using drones, but I imagine it is something that will come if it's not already playing out. And just in a kind of connected, but I think very important register, what strikes me is the extent to which drone surveillance and footage is absolutely essential to the nature documentary, which is the way in which most people in the West come to understand nature in the global South and you get this idea of wilderness, right? So if you watch any of the many nature documentaries from the BBC or on Netflix, you constantly see these sort of sweeping vistas of the natural world. And it's a world that has absolutely no humans in it. It might have many trees, it might have charismatic megafauna like elephants, but you don't get to see any human beings there. So it reinforces this idea that conservation is about preserving wilderness, which is depopulated. And so that kind of representative lens of these kind of massive wilderness vistas that drone footage really reinforces is a form of violence, right? Because it's about the Western way of seeing and it legitimates violent dispossession of people, which often means shooting them or, you know, hurting them off the land in an extremely violent way. And, and for instance, some of the people who are at this conference that we just organized at the Graduate Center to launch the Decolonization by Conservation book were from eastern Kenya, where the Maasai have been fighting against dispossession as part of the expansion of national parks in recent years. And this has involved 
burning down their villages, shooting people, and many other allegations of really horrendous human rights violations. So that kind of drone footage, you know, whether or not it's used on the ground in terms of militarized fortress conservation, it also very much structures how we see the natural world, and that has violent implications. Well, you know, Aziza's question, your response gives me a chance to plug somebody else that we're going to have on the show. And her name is Elspeth Iralu, and she's at the University of New Mexico. And she's a student of Alyosha's, and she's from Nagaland. And she has this amazing project about aerial surveillance in South Asia and Palestine. So really important work there. I want to go to something you briefly mentioned to talk more about it, Ashley, is and you have a whole section of the book called An Alternative Conservation. Could you spell out some instances and examples of that? Because I think it's so important to have other kinds of tactics and strategies that have worked at certain levels. And again, that's part of the global sharing that I saw in the book. Yes. So I think the idea is to make sure that we remember the message that indigenous sovereignty is connected to preservation of biodiversity. And right now, the statistics are really shocking. On so-called protected areas, which currently constitute 17% of the planet, and the goal coming out of that Montreal conference last autumn is to roughly double that amount of protected areas, right? So the slogan was 30 by 30, 30% of the planet in protected area status by 2030. So we're really talking about massive expansion of protected areas. But within protected areas themselves, according to recent reports, only about 1% of the land actually has indigenous sovereignty. There are other arrangements like co-management, for instance, or, you know, indigenous people who are kind of encouraged to cede their claims to conservation organizations with the guarantee that it will be protected and they'll have access of some kind. But, you know, as some of the indigenous activists who appeared at this conference and who are in the Decolonized Conservation book said, they don't like the idea of co-management because it's essentially colonialism. They want control of their land. They want sovereignty. And so the real question is how we can support those struggles for sovereignty and how we can look at instances where indigenous people do have sovereignty as important in modeling successful protection of the global environmental commons. So I think one of the most important ones is probably the struggle of the Yanomami in Brazil and contiguous countries like Venezuela. And it's important to remember that their victories, which are embedded in the Brazilian constitution, came as part of a struggle against military rule in Brazil. It was part of a kind of anti-fascist movement and kind of coalition building strategy. So it's only when you're aware that kind of fortress conservation is connected to a form not just of colonialism, but eco-fascism, and you yep. support anti-fascist work and indigenous land-backed mm. sovereignty claim that you can actually have these meaningful forms of stewardship. And these are practices that come out of indigenous ontologies, the ideas of buen vivir or living in respect for the land, thinking of the land as a relative and connecting to it in a way that is respectful and based on preserving the land for many future generations. So, you know, there's been a lot of work about these kinds of ideas and about the rights of Mother Nature, which, of course, have sort of been embodied in constitutions in Latin American countries where these movements have been particularly strong, like Ecuador and Bolivia, as is true for the United Nations Declaration of 
the rights of indigenous people, getting something into a constitution doesn't necessarily mean it's actually going to play out on the ground in a way that, you know, the nation state respects. And the case of Ecuador and the Yusini Park is a really important one, right? Because there was an effort to get rights of mother nature into the constitution to protect these incredibly rich biodiverse areas in the Amazonian rainforest in Ecuador. But that didn't stop ultimately oil drilling in that area. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, it's important to sort of see that these struggles have to be multifaceted and that kind of, you know, struggle for legal victories is only one prong and has to be connected to, you know, global forms of solidarity, which is why it's so important for people in the global north to be aware of what's happening with these corporate conservation organizations and to be critical of them. And of course, it had to be connected to grassroots mobilization on the ground and forms of civil disobedience, which, of course, activists in the global south are really at the forefront of. Well, in fact, indigenous writers and scholars like Yellow Lives Dene, political philosopher Glenn Coulthard have written very persuasively, precisely about the perils of state recognition and its capacity to then co-opt indigenous struggles as yet another form of aggrandizing and legitimizing its own power. At the same time, we saw just recently, for instance, the Sequetmec people in what is currently calls itself British Columbia in the country that currently calls itself Canada, declaring a watershed a protected area on their own initiative without seeking any recognition from the colonial Canadian state at all. And so can you talk about perhaps some precedents for forms of Indigenous assertion of sovereignty and land defense that explicitly dissociate themselves and in fact premise themselves perhaps on a refusal of state recognition? You know, I'm trying to think about instances in relation to conservation, and I'm not sure that I have an example ready. So I'll have to think about it in a second to come back to that question. Okay. Okay, can I ask you another question in the meantime? <laughs> sure. also follows up from your remarks about these other Indigenous epistemologies and ontologies that underlie practices of Indigenous, what we're calling conservation, but perhaps in, you know, Indigenous language and semantic webs would be referred to as something completely differently. But it's striking how so much discourse and scholarship, which represents itself as supposedly critical, continues to be premised on the erasure of Indigenous thought as thought, Indigenous philosophy as philosophy, continues to treat Indigenous legal, philosophical, epistemological systems as effectively a cognitive terra nullius. And in so much conservation, we see the enduring persistence of this treatment of non-humans as fungible commodities that, you know, we might destroy this one piece of land, but then we'll save this other piece of land. We'll tear down these trees, but then we'll plant some new trees. Or, you know, we might endanger these animals, but then we'll save these other animals over here somewhere else. And so things are treated as interchangeable and fungible in a way that it seems is very profoundly challenged by indigenous epistemologies that are grounded in particular places what Indigenous philosophers like Vanessa Watts refer to as Indigenous place thought. So forms of knowledge that are inextricably connected to what in the book are called territories of life. And so can you talk a bit about the importance of centering not just Indigenous sovereignty, but the forms of knowledge production, understanding that underpin them in order to contest 
some of the violence that's so deeply embedded in these conservation practices? Yeah. Another easy question. That's a great question. We've talked a lot about indigenous sovereignty and about sort of forest dependent communities. But at the outset, I said that one of the factors driving the biodiversity crisis is industrial agriculture. So I think it's also important to talk about peasant movements around the world as an alternative to sort of plantations and industrial agriculture. And there I would cite organizations, transnational organizations like La Via Campesina, as well as people engaged in sort of agroecological practices, even when they're not part of transnational peasant federations. And agroecology is a way of relating to the earth that is completely opposed to the Western sort of industrial model of agriculture, which is based on sort of seeing the soil as inert and you know, dumping fossil fuel-based pesticides and fertilizers on the ground and having vast monocultures, whether it's palm oil or soya or something like that. So agroecology tries to have as little external inputs as possible to see the earth as actually alive and to use a kind of variety of different crops that complement one another in terms of nitrogen fixing and not exhausting the earth's nutrients in order to grow crops in a sustainable manner. And by doing that, to support food sovereignty. So I think that these ways of relating to the earth and kind of seeing it as actually alive and understanding that the earth is not just an inert substrate, but is actually filled with life and all these living organisms and thinking about how to kind of cultivate a meaningful relationship with those forms of life in the earth is a kind of connecting thread with mm. indigenous ideas about the rights of earth and of these kind of, as you said, epistemological and ontological ways of seeing and relating to the earth. And of course, it's hugely important as an alternative to the kind of plantation, monocultural forms of capitalist agriculture that are one of the main forces driving the sixth extinction today. Yeah, and you began referring to your book on extinction and capitalism, which you gave me this nice segue to in your last sentence. But it's actually a passage from Fiore Longo that gets to the heart of what I think is so important about the book. It's when she writes, it's not all humans who are destroying nature. It's one particular way of life and ideology. In reality, we are part of nature and must stop pretending we are separate. This is a human crisis and not only a climate or environmental one. Protecting nature must come to be seen as a vital aspect of this wider issue, how to live and create a world in which a healthy and decent life is possible. Could you talk about what she's getting at there and how you approach this in your own very powerful way through your book on extinction and capitalism? Yeah. So I'll give one kind of example that I think really speaks volumes. When the forestry department was established by the British colonial power in India in the mid-19th century, the British had destroyed so many of their forests in building the Royal Navy and achieving maritime hegemony in previous centuries that they didn't have very much knowledge of forestry. So they had to hire a German forester, Dietrich Brandeis, and he was the first head of the forestry service under the British Raj. Why did they hire him in particular? Well, because he had been in charge of establishing scientific management of the forests in Germany, which basically meant taking the forests which German peasants in areas like the Rhineland had seen as a commons and had you know, been engaging with in a kind of sustainable way for many, many centuries and turning it over to the state, making sure that 
The peasants were kicked out of the forest, putting them in prison if they tried to venture back into the forest, and continuing to take trees out of the forest, but supposedly at a rate that was sustainable, in other words, scientifically manageable. So that model was exported to India. And so to think about why that example is so important, it's because essentially what we see is that there's a kind of elite project controlling the commons, which purports to be scientific, purports to be in the interest of conservation, but actually is involved with massive displacement of people and continuing over-exploitation of the environmental commons. And so if we think about those environmental commons, we can see that people around the world have had historical ways of managing those commons in a way that is sustainable, and that kind of co-opting the commons and exploiting them is really an elite project, one driven by small groups of capitalists and colonialists in control of the process and which tends to displace huge numbers of people and that actually we can forge connections across geographical differences and solidarities in, in resisting these forms of violence against the commons and the people who have sustained mm. them. Thank you. And the book is so full of these beautiful accounts of how people nourish the ecosystems and the ecologies that nourish them. And so for that alone, it provides such a wonderful map to a future perhaps organized differently. And so we're profoundly thankful to you and Survival International for assembling this. Can you perhaps end by telling us about some of Survival International current research and campaigns and how people can support them? So the Blood Carbon Campaign is one of the latest campaigns based on drawing attention to the way that offsetting is being used. And it looks specifically at the Northern Rangelands Conservation Initiative in Northern Kenya, which is displacing Maasai and other indigenous groups. The idea being that this project run by former British colonists in Kenya is going to teach people who are traditional pastoralists in the region how to manage their livestock better. And in doing that, that the earth is going to absorb a lot of carbon and therefore that polluting industries in the global north are going to be able to continue to emit carbon. So that's a really important campaign. And those kinds of policies are being advanced all around the world. So I would say that people should look at Survival International's website and follow a lot of their documentation of what's happening and what kinds of alternatives are being forged. And, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about, but which I think your question sort of leads to is the role of gender in these kinds of struggles, because I think many of the examples that are cited in the book have to do with the role of women in maintaining the environmental commons historically. So one of the most famous movements, for instance, was the Chipka movement in India in the 1970s, where women were literally hugging trees to prevent foresters coming in and chopping down those trees, part of the sort of scientific management processes that I've described. So, you know, I think that was an important instance of sort of autonomous cultivation and of environmental commons and resistance to state claims of being the most scientific in terms of managing those environmental commons. But the book Decolonized Conservation, as you said, has many, many other examples of this and how people are really fighting for alternatives around the world to corporate conservation. Well, great. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.